morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Pastor Nick. I'm sure most of you know that. Um, We've got quite a few guests in today because of the uh, child dedications and also just new guests anyway. Uh, should we just say a warm welcome and give them a round of applause? It's really nice to have you with us. We really appreciate you being alongside us today. Yes, yeah, so we find ourselves in part three of a series that extends for the month of November uh, in the book of Philippians. Uh, Philippians chapter 3. And I want to ask a question to us all this morning uh, by way of making a start. What is it that makes a, a culture and an empire durable? What is it that makes uh, a culture last for a long time? And, and think back through to your history at school and uh, have a reflection around today's present culture because there are lots and lots of cultures and empires that haven't made it to today. We don't have uh, Perizzites or Hittites or Ammonites or Persians or Babylonians. Uh, we don't have the Romans anymore. Uh, we don't have even the Greek Empire, although Greece exists as a nation. We don't have the Vikings or the Saxons. So what is it about a culture that allows it to last for a long time? Because it seems that that's quite a, a difficult thing to achieve when we look back through history. But there is a standout and very notable exception. Uh, and it's the culture and the religion and the faith of the Jewish people. Judaism has lasted for around 3,500 years. Um, and that's a very, very long-standing faith. In fact, if we were to look through our culture and our history, it's probably the most long-standing faith that there is. And I'm including, you know, Eastern religions and Eastern cultures as well. Uh, you can drive today through, uh, if you get in your car and go into North London and drive through the kind of the suburbs of Golders Green where there's a thriving Jewish community and, and you drive through there on a Tuesday morning in your car at about school time, you will see a whole lot of little boys uh, going to their Orthodox Jewish school with, that little, with their traditional dress and that little white kind of skull cap thing that they wear that I think is called a kippah. I think I pronounced that right. It's made of lace and it's white. And there they are dashing along the street to get into their school. That can still be seen today. Uh, and that has existed for a very, very long time, that pattern and that tradition uh, and their culture. And so I, I was kind of really fascinated by the fact that Judaism has lasted so long, the Jewish faith is so durable, by comparison with so many other cultures and empires and, uh, and nations over the years. And I got into researching this, uh, and I think there are three main reasons for this. First of all, the God of the Old Testament, uh, who is, uh, you know, our God as well, um, really, really supported them and served them strongly. And I think he still does, actually. I think that relationship with God is still vibrant and strong. They worship the same Father God that we find in the Old Testament that, that we do. You know, as Christians, we follow the same person in many ways. We, we share the same Father. Uh, we're part of that, that kind of same ancestral family, if you like. And there's absolutely no doubt that their relationship with God has made them strong. It has made them durable. It has made them uh, powerful. God has answered many, many, many of their prayers. Uh, you know, there are people who have been displaced and, well, abused and attacked and sent all around the world and put down. We've had some ter terrible things happen to the Jewish people in history. But God has kept on coming through 
for them. And I think that that is definitely part of why they've lasted so long. Uh, Secondly, they have very strong traditions and values and culture um, and they celebrate things really well. And they, they're very, very intentional about passing things on to their kids and to their grandchildren. And they do this through a series of festivals where they mark their history and they celebrate the different points of liberation that God has taken them through. And they do it really well and they do it really strongly and they do it in a family setting. And so if you're a little Jewish boy or a little Jewish girl from a very early age, you'll be celebrating much of the culture of the Jewish faith. And that's really part of it as well. And then thirdly, I would suggest the two of those things combine. So if you believe that God has given you these things as part of your faith and as part of your your history, then you're going to protect those really strongly. You're going to be saying to yourself, well, my very soul could be in danger if I don't perpetuate these and make sure that they're celebrated and continued. But I I also want to say that, you know, sometimes in life, a great quality is also a great limitation, and for the reason, you know, for, uh, we, we have, uh, for the reason of their strength, if you like, or some of the, the, uh, the force behind their strength is also the force that stops them from changing. So on the one hand, that makes them very, very strong and they will carry on for a very, very long time. But on the other hand, that strength prevents them from changing. It makes them very, very change resistant. And so uh, in around the, you know, the, the turn of the, of the switch from BC to AD uh, at the time uh, we, that we all know about in, in our faith, uh, if this, let's say this uneducated carpenter who aspires to be a rabbi appears and he's creating this breakaway sect uh, of uneducated, sinful, misfit, uh, you know, don't fit, a, you know, marginalized, don't fit kind of group of, you know, ragamuffins that go along with him. Um, and he is then crucified with around another 30,000 Jewish men in that period of history. Then the Orthodox Jewish mindset is going to go, well, that doesn't bother me. I'm not interested in what you're doing, breakaway man and your little group. You go right ahead, but you're weird. I'm nothing to do with that. That doesn't touch my value system. Surely that would be nothing to take any notice of, except, except within eight weeks of this breakaway guy uh, getting crucified uh, on a cross, 10,000 Jews, 10,000 Jews have started following him. That is absolutely massive. Now, let me take you through the level of change and and the mindset adjustment that that would require for those Jews to do that. Because I think when you you hear this list, you'd be like, this is an argument for Christianity all by itself, this list of stuff. Seven massive changes appear really, really quickly. And we're talking within eight weeks of something happening that overturns 1,500 years of settled, stable practice and tradition. That's huge. Let me take you through some of those changes. Number one, the animal sacrifice system is gone. Pretty much in the space of eight weeks, these people have decided, we don't need to do animal sacrifices anymore. That is not needed anymore. Our system of having to do an annual get right with God by killing an animal and shedding its blood on the altar, that has now come to an end. And in fact, the carpenter rabbi guy, his followers consider his crucifixion a sacrifice and they consider it such a good sacrifice that the animal sacrifice is no longer necessary. It comes to an end. 
That's a very radical thought. And I also want to say to us that the Jews today would go right back to animal sacrifices had they got access to the Temple Mount. In Jerusalem, they don't have that at the moment. If that ever became available to them again, what you will see is Orthodox Jews clustering around that and restarting the animal sacrifice system. Um, no, it can't happen at the moment. So number one, animal sacrifices within the space of eight weeks, are they're, they're gone. That's now gone. We don't need that anymore, according to this new sect, uh, following uh, this carpenter rabbi guy called Jesus. Secondly, righteousness now comes through a personal relationship, not through adhering to a law or a set of laws. That's really, really big. You know, these, these new Christians or these new followers of this breakaway guy called Jesus are saying, well, if you just have a relationship with me, then God's righteousness will be bestowed upon you and you don't need to worry too much about compliance with every last little detail of the law. Just by fact of you having a relationship with Jesus, you are made righteous in the eyes of God. That's huge. Don't need to worry about the law and all of its million things that you have to fulfill. Just have a relationship with the Lord Jesus. And of course, if you've been working hard on maintaining all those laws and rights and rituals, um, you know, that's, that that's feels a whole, well, just feels way, way too easy, doesn't it? What? I just have a relationship with this guy and then he makes me right with God? That's, you know, how does that work? How can that possibly make me right? I've got to do all these other things, surely. So righteousness is now through a person and not through the law. Thirdly, the Sabbath gets swapped around. Now, that's a really, really big deal. Let me give you an, an illustration of the magnitude of that in the Jewish mind. Imagine on Wednesday this week, around the world, in every single Christian church, some really massive thing happens from the Holy Spirit, let's say. And we just think it's so, so big and so, so important that all the Christian leaders and all the Christian churches kind of get together on Zoom and, and, and you know, different apps and they all talk to each other and they all agree do you know what? That is so important. We're going to shift our main meeting day from a Sunday now to a Wednesday. That's the size of the change in view here. Because for the Jews, they had heard from God in their Bibles, their Old Testament Bible, that God had spent six days creating the earth and then doing what on the seventh? Resting. Absolutely. He'd rested. So you can't touch that. That's, that's absolutely holy. And yet this breakaway group following this rabbi carpenter guy are saying, well, you know, he rose again on effectively the first day of the week, which we know as Sunday. And we're going to celebrate that by switching the Sabbath over to that new day. That's a massive deal there for a load of Jews right there. That's like, oh, well, you can't do that. We're not going there. So, and then fourthly, <laughs> one God multiplies up into three. One God multiplies into three. And, and this, this, let's, let, let me talk you through how this works. The, the, the Jews would have seen in Deuteronomy 6 uh, verse 4, they would have heard the words, Listen Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? One. They would have listened to that and gone, well, God is one. He's one person. And then this upstart comes along from a backwater of, of, of you know, Israel. Nobody knows where he comes from. And he is now saying or claiming or allowing people to believe that he is God as well. And so that would be massively heretical. You know, you can't just come along and kind of say, you know, if I came along today and said, well, I'm God. And actually, I'm inventing a new faith and it's called Nickianity. You know, I mean, you'd all go... Oh, Get over yourself, you know. 
Uh, it just wouldn't be right. That would be heretical, wouldn't it? And yet this breakaway sect claimed that their man is God. Now, that's radical and heretical enough all by itself. But then this man says, oh, by the way, <laughs> there's a third person of God as well. And he's called the Holy Spirit. And he's going to come 50 days after I've been, and, uh, been, you know, uh, been crucified on the cross. And he's going to be with you on the inside of you. And he's going to help you. And he's going to be like a hotline to God all the time in your conscience. And he's there. And you've not met him yet, but he's going to be poured out at a festival called Pentecost. And the Jews are just like, stop, stop. There is one God. You as a human, you're not God. And don't be telling us about an airy-fairy floaty force that's going to come along and help us be like, like Jesus on the inside or like you on the inside. That's just nonsense. Can you see how hard that is from, to go from one God into three just in a lifetime? or and Not even a lifetime. We're talking 33 years. Number five, they mess with the idea of Messiah. So the Jews had a very particular idea of what the Messiah would be like. It would be David part two. You know, like when you, you, you've got your favorite film and then the part two comes out of the cinema. It's David the sequel. Their model of a Messiah was somebody like David. Uh, David who would champion their cause, who would fight all their opponents, who would bring military and political freedom, who would get rid of the Roman overlords that are currently occupying uh, their nation. But what this new sect say, what this new group of breakaway misfits say that's following the carpenter rabbi, is that Messiah is all about personal transformation. It's all about being renewed on the inside through your relationship with him. Um, it, it, it's all about personal change. It's not really got a political dimension per se, unless, of course, you're somebody who follows that religious leader and you're high up in power. Then, yes, it might have some political ramifications. What they also do is they claim that Messiah is for everyone in the world, not just the Jews. And most of the Jews would have been pretty upset about that idea because they were waiting for Messiah to lift them up and put them back on their pedestal where they think they belonged in front of the world. Um, but no, uh, this new sect say, well, no, uh, Messiah is for everybody and he'll bring personal freedom for everybody. Uh, and, the, and the Orthodox Jews are going, well, hold on a minute, that waters down our faith. That can't be right. Number six, massive change number six. These Christians, as they start to become called, uh, they pick up and start and create a brand new ritual uh, called baptism. And, uh, you know, there's not really been much evidence of this idea of putting something completely in water and pulling it out again righteous. Nobody's seen that before, particularly. Um, it would take a very advanced Jewish theologian to make the connection between the world being baptised in the flood and baptism, because really that's the first instance of baptism that we see in the Bible is the flood, because God makes the world righteous by completely filling, you know, completely covering it with water. That's what some, you know, that, that imagery is there for us in our baptisms, isn't it? But, you know, the Jews would not have made that connection, I don't think. Um, the only other instance perhaps we might have would be uh, Naaman, and he was a foreigner, and he did it because he was being obedient to somebody who said, dip yourself in the river seven times. That's not really a baptism. That's a, that's a one-off miracle. And so they've got no reference points for baptism, and baptism starts with, well, with frankly, an absolute weirdo out in the desert. A guy called John the Baptist, who's a little bit challenging, but utterly weird, and why would you take any notice of him? He wears, you know, camel hair and eats insects. What's that about? You know, so let's not be uh, getting too ruffled by John the Baptist. 
But this new sect of people who follow this guy, Jesus, go on and on and on about how baptism is a picture of the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus and that that shows them the path through their own, for their own lives and their own trajectory through death and out the other side. They believe they're going to be raised again as well. And then number seven, we have communion. This new group of people actually celebrate their leader's death on the cross by eating and drinking his flesh and blood. Like they actually say, this is my body, this is my blood, consume this and have it on the inside of me in remembrance of me. That's gross. Why would you do that? The orthodox Jewish mindset would have found that really odd and really repellent. And also they go back in their scriptures and they check. They say, well, no, hold on a minute. Anyone hung on a tree is absolutely cursed. So that rules that right out. So we're not following this new sect. We're really not. Let me give you a modern day analogy of how weird it is to have communion and remember the death and resurrection of Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. Just go with me on this. Imagine you're someone who um, really, really loves John F. Kennedy in 1960s America. And uh, you, th- you loved him so much that you created a, f- a kind of a, a number of faith groups around the world. And what you do with your memory of his assassination uh, is that you c- literally construct a grassy knoll and you gather in your local grassy knoll and you all have like little pairs of bullets hanging around your neck on a chain. That's how utterly weird it is for us to think about that. And then that's how the Jews thought about crucifixion. They were like, what is this? This is absolutely weird. What are you doing? And it's all happening way, way, way too fast. It's all happening within eight weeks of this strange event uh, that they've, they hear about. Um, I just want to ask the question, what could have caused 10,000 Jews to leave 1,500 years of secure and important traditions within just eight weeks. What could have caused that? What would cause them to risk being ostracized and put out of their version of church that had been their social glue for centuries? You see, they're a culture that believed that the longer something lasted and the more durable it was, the truer it was. Because it would stand the test of time, right? That's what they thought. What would cause 10,000 people to change their minds over eight weeks? (laughs) I'll tell you what caused them to change their minds. The resurrection caused them to change their minds. They were confronted by something that they had no reference points for. They, They had to change their minds because there was a great big fat resurrection in their history now. There was nothing they could do to explain it away. There was nothing they could do to get it out of their imagination. There was nothing they could do to stop people talking about it. It absolutely stuck out and nobody could do anything about it. If you remember when they all gather in Jerusalem on, on, in Acts chapter two on the day of Pentecost and there's, there's, there's thousands of people there and Peter preaches and he preaches about what's happened in response to his message, which is about the resurrection and being put to death and then being raised again. The response from the crowd is like it is in here. You can hear a pin drop. Absolutely nobody says, "Uh, hold on a minute, that didn't happen. I was there. Nobody says that. And the reason that nobody says that is because it happened. It absolutely happened. There is nothing that the Jews can do to stop the fact that the resurrection has happened. It's the biggest, fattest fact of history. 
You're never ever going to get the resurrection out of your mind and heart. It's never ever going to go away. And that's why 10,000 people decide to bank on that instead of 1,500 years of comfortable traditions. That's exactly why they've changed. It's because it's true. It's because this new breakaway guy comes along and he basically leads the way to heaven by himself, by going through the cross and coming out the other side. He absolutely does. Now, that context then sets us up for Philippians chapter 3. And this is where we find ourselves in Philippians chapter 3. It's now 30 years on from all of these incredible events that have caused, well, at the time about 10,000, but now it's probably more like 50,000, and it includes Gentiles, so non-Jews as well. And we've got, 30 years on, a bit of a backlash coming against the new Christian faith, whether that's out of envy or out of success or out of a kind of a harking back to how things were. Do you remember, this was a nation that wanted to go back to cucumbers and garlic in, in, in slavery in Egypt. Yeah, they thought that was great. So, you know, this is a nation that really, really likes to look back on, on how things were with nostalgia in their eyes. And so we have this backlash from Judaism against Christianity. And it's coming in the form of a group called the Circumcision Party. Can I just say that's never, ever a party? Uh, that's not a, you know, what I mean by that is a group of people who thinks that, thinks that the law is really, really important. And they say, yeah, you can have a relationship with Jesus, but you have to also follow all the aspects of the law as well, including circumcision. I've noticed, I don't know if this, if this uh, resonates with anyone, but I've noticed that in my own moral life, and I'm sure this happens for you as well, you'll press forward into a new righteousness in Christ in a season, won't you? Maybe you'll hear a great message, you'll have a worship night, you'll, you'll go to a conference, you'll read a fabulous book, and your, your, your devotional life really increases. You step forward in your faith, don't you? And then you have a, a tough week, and things kind of slip back a bit. And you're like, oh man, I've sinned again. Uh, you know, I really wish I hadn't done that. And, and, and that's what, uh, that is actually a genuine view of the spiritual life. It oscillates like the pendulum on a grandfather clock. Okay, it does. You, you move forward, you move back. You move forward, you move back. Now, the key to spiritual growth is making sure that the top of your pendulum, year on year, is moving along this, in this direction towards Christ. And so that the backswing of five years from now off your pendulum is much, much better overall righteousness-wise than it was maybe five years before or now. Does that make sense? So you've got to work on what are your reference points in Christ and what are your non-negotiables in Christ so that when you have the bad week, the, the, the week that you regret, your regrets are swinging back to this point rather than swinging back to this point because you've changed the top. You've changed the framework of how you think. That's how spirituality works on a personal level. And I also think it works like that on a national and a political and a cultural level. We all move forward as a culture and then sometimes we all move back. And we see this exactly working out in Philippians chapter 3. We see a fantastic uptake of this new carpenter rabbi's faith because he is the king of heaven. He was resurrected from the dead. His, his uh, ministry and his miracles are utterly compelling and 10,000 Jews decide to follow him. Then we have the backswing from Judaism that says, oh, hold on a minute, you need the law as well. And Paul is writing to counter that. He's writing to say that that's not right. Philippians, two, uh, sorry, Philippians 3 verses 2 and 3 says this, Watch out for the dogs, watch out for the evil workers, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. He is referring to this circumcision party who want people to fulfill the law as well as have a relationship with Jesus. 
And Paul is then saying, no rubbish. You know, Christians are the true circumcision. They've been set apart in their hearts by the Holy Spirit for God uh, from the world to, to heaven. And therefore, that's their setting apart. It doesn't need to be reflected in an act of the flesh, which is what circumcision is all about. Paul then lists all the religious fleshy things that he had formerly been proud of when he used to be a zealous Jew, fulfilling all the different aspects of the law. He goes through it. He's like a kind of roll of honor from his past life of how he tried to fulfill all the law. Listen to this, Philippians 2, sorry, Philippians 3, 4 to 6 says this. If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews regarding the law, a Pharisee regarding zeal persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. In other words, Paul is saying is, I am pretty much perfect when it comes to the Jewish religion, to the Jewish faith. You would not find a better exponent of that than me, but having then since discovered the reality of Christ, I consider consider that all done. And in the original language, it's a lot stronger a word than that. I have moved on from that and I have received Christ and he is my righteousness. He is writing to the Philippians to say, if you have a relationship with Jesus, that is what makes you right with God. End of. Nothing else does it. Have a relationship with Jesus and you will, you will be in right standing with the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to talk you through a slide on the screen. Uh, Becky, would you mind popping that slide up for us? We're going to talk about three things. Rebellion religion and relationship. And I want to just clarify this for us. Uh, You can uh, pull this down from um, our website with that QR code. It'll take you to bcc.life forward slash equip dash me. In some of my recent teachings, I've done some quite detailed things that I think it's a little unfair to hit you with in five minutes. So please download that as a PDF from our website and you can ponder that. I'd love for you to do that. Let me talk you through how these three things work because they play straight into where Paul is at in Philippians chapter three. Let's have a look at that right now. We're going to start at the bottom and we're going to start with rebellion. Rebellion is anything that sets itself up to go against God. Um, it comes from a flesh place. It's a human thing. Rebellion is, is in there from, from, the, you know, from the days of the fall in the Garden of Eden back in Genesis 2, Genesis 3. Um, its major dynamic is it strives to get away from God. That's what it's trying to do. And it's, uh, its key feature is defiance. It's like, I, you know, I'm going to defy all authority. I don't accept God. Um, and what you then have is you have a whole bunch of isms that come out in humanity in result, as, as a response to that. So you have atheism, secularism, Marxism, communism, humanism, nihilism, lots and lots of movements of thought within Christian behavior that basically say God doesn't exist and that we're going to go our own way. And uh, I kind of want to ask some of those movements, how's that working for you? Don't think it's working too well as I look around the world. I really don't. Uh, What we then see is that the prodigal son parable is an awesome parable to kind of help us understand this. What you have is that rebellion is represented by the self-centered younger son and he's isolated and he's distant in his geography. And when people are isolated and distant, that is often a sign of rebellion in their lives. You know, when folk come to church and they're just ordinary and they sit in the pew and they're happy to hear what the pastor's got to say and they're happy to connect, they're not really in rebellion. They're doing exactly what God would hope for them to do. But for that person who says, oh, I didn't go to church, I'm not part of this, I do my own thing, well, great, but you're kind of in rebellion. That's not God's heart for you. That's not the best life that he wants for you to have. It's really not. 
And the, in terms of deeds or works, we have a, a situation where we're trying to earn merit by our own standards. Merit according to us. What we think is good. And unfortunately, we have seen many, many times in history where what a single person thinks is good is absolutely not good at all. You know, Adolf Hitler thought he was doing the world a favour. He was not. He was, he was in rebellion and he was earning merit by his own standards and persuading other people to accept that rhetoric. And the boasting that we might come up with is, look what I've done for me. That's how re- rebellious people boast. Let's lift it now to the, to the second row, which is where Paul is at. And I've circled in red those parts where Paul has really kind of been strong in his former life. Does that make sense? So you, as we go through that, you can see that. So religion also comes from flesh. It's different this time from rebellion because it strives towards God. So it's got a bit of a heart there to try and understand, hey, there's some, there's some value in God. And so in some ways, it's a little better than rebellion. But it doesn't quite cut it, as we shall see. The biggest feature of, of religion is pride. Hey, look at me. Look what, I can, look what I've done for God. You know, and Paul goes through his credentials. And there was a time in his life where those credentials would have been superbly impressive in the local synagogue. And he's saying, nope, that's all out now because of Christ. What we then have is the human response to that is every single other belief system on the planet where people have to do something in order to connect with God. You know, Buddha's, Buddha's last words were, strive ceaselessly. Well, Jesus' last words were, it is finished, because he's done the work. That's totally different, isn't it? Totally different. What we see in the parable of the prodigal son, this is represented, this, uh, this second row here, religion, is represented by the huffy older son who is superior and distant in heart. He's not distant geographically, but he's distant in heart, Man, he's a long way from his father and his brother, isn't he? You read the things he says about his, his younger brother, they're vile, they're vile. He can't celebrate for his younger brother coming back. Religious people find it really hard to celebrate genuinely. They really do. What we do uh, is we try and earn merit with God by, by the things we do. So we say, right, if I preach these sermons and I do this work for God and I raise this money for charity, then I'm going to be okay with God. Yeah, but that's a bit like me kind of, you know, you know, my boy's coming to me and saying, hey, dad, if I do the dishwasher, will you love me? I mean, like, no, I just love you anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's nice that you do the dishwasher, of course, but that's not the reason why I love you. Not at all. I just love you because you're my son. And then the boasting that might come from the religious person is, look at what I've done for God. These are the things I've done for God. And Paul would be absolutely in that camp. Uh, with, with the persecution of Christianity. Let's jump onto the top row. Uh, we have relationship. And this, is kind of, this, this, this gold row is intentional. You'll see in just a minute. Relationship is what Paul is urging the Philippian Christians to build with Jesus and with one another. And I urge you the same. Build your relationship with Jesus and build your relationship with one another. It comes from the Spirit, from the Holy Spirit. It doesn't come from a human place. It comes from heaven for humanity in the person of Jesus who agreed to come down and go through the cross as we saw last week. Uh, You know, the humiliation of Jesus and then the exaltation of Jesus that we looked at in that kind of big valley diagram we had last week. Jesus does that for us. Its biggest feature is not defiance, it's not pride, it's love. It's just love. God the Father absolutely loves you to bits. And there is nothing that he won't do out of his love for you. In fact, He goes so far with his love for you that he would send his own family member to go to the most cruel death for you.
what we see in the prodigal son is the lost son reunited with his father. That's what we see. And then works or things that we do, they flow from gratitude about God's amazing work in us first. We don't do things to try and get God's favor. We do things out of a heart of like, oh, wow, you did that for me? That's amazing. Thank you, God. I would love to serve and, and help you in some way or, or be part of your kingdom and, and make, make this available to other people. How can I serve? How can I be, show my gratitude? You know, those 10 lepers that got healed, that one guy that came back and said, thanks, that's me. I, I would be like, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done in my life and how much you've changed me on the inside for the better. Thank you, Jesus. Let my life be, let my life works be out of gratitude for what you've already done. Not to try and earn anything off you, God, that I, I can't earn it anyway. And then the boast would be, look, look at what Jesus is doing in us. Look at what Jesus is doing in us. Um, Eli, are you here today? Sorry to spring this on you, buddy. Would you come down a minute? Um, um, thank you so much. Eli is our food bank manager, and Eli is going to help us with a little demonstration. We're just going to come into land with an illustration of, the, I think, what is the, one of the most important verses uh, in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. I want to give you a visual illustration. Thank you so much, Eli. Give Eli a bit of a round of applause. I didn't... You, you don't need to say anything. And um, uh, I, haven't, I haven't told Eli this already, so he's just standing there wondering what on earth is going to happen. But it's going to be good. Could you put this T-shirt on for us? And uh, with the words on the front kind of facing, facing the, uh, the crowd. That's brilliant. Thank you, Eli. Now, the, this T-shirt is covered in some, well, some really grim words. They're really not great. Uh, we've got uh, isolation, uh, rage. We've got a label that maybe somebody's had spoken over, Eli, a loser. You've got self you know, I mean, Eli's a great guy, but you know, he's really into himself. He's doing all his own stuff. Um, despair is a characteristic. There's a bit of pain there, and under his arm there, there's addiction. And, and this T-shirt represents kind of who we are before we meet Jesus. It represents the struggle that we have in ourselves without a saviour. That's, that's what's going on here. And a lot of us, before we, before we knew Jesus, we might have had more of a struggle with some of these things and some of the other related things to those than we prepared to admit, right? That's what happens. Now, Chloe, could I have the, uh, the Jesus shirt, please? Thank you very much. When Eli decides to follow Jesus, what happens is he gets given uh, a covering uh, by Jesus, which is like this gold shirt. You can do that up if you want to. <laughs> there we go. It fits you really well. It only just fits me. Can I just say that? So, <laughs> when Jesus, when you, when you form a relationship with Jesus, what happens is uh, the gold of who Jesus is, his purity and his righteousness and his wonderful nature, get given to you as part of your relationship with him. You, you, you get the righteousness that is represented by Jesus in this gold shirt upon you. Now, so when you, when you stand in heaven before God... If you've got this shirt, which is the golden shirt of Jesus' spirituality, because you follow him, God looks at that and goes, ah, oh, that's my son. That's great. You, you are totally welcome in here, Eli. Come on in. That's what, that is what happens. Um, it represents who Jesus is. Now, I want to say to you, there's, a, there's one or two kind of responses to this process happening in our lives that I just don't need to paint to you. The first is one of joyfulness. Because I don't know about you, but like that, those words were pretty grotty, weren't they? But to have this instead is so, so much better, isn't it? 
Jesus, would do, Jesus wants to and will and does put this on you the moment you decide that you're going to follow him. Spiritually speaking, this is Eli's state from the point at which he decided to follow Jesus. That is absolutely correct and true theologically. You may not see it necessarily in the physical, but spiritually that is absolutely the case. And so uh, we get right standing with God because of what Jesus does by putting this cloak on us or putting this shirt on us. And it's very significant in the parable of the prodigal son that the father comes out and puts a cloak on his miserable wretch of a son to cover him up and confer status upon him. I would suggest it feels an awful lot better to be dressed like that than it would do dressed how he was before. Your feelings get lifted a lot because Jesus has come along and said, hey, you're my righteous son, you're my righteous daughter. And that makes you feel a whole lot, lot better. Your esteem is going to rise a whole lot if you're dressed as Christ, if you have Christ upon you. If you have the righteousness of Christ upon you, you can walk into little feeling like a king or a queen. I mean, maybe you... That's true. You, might, you may not want to walk into little dressed exactly like that, Eli, but, you know, but it, that's a spiritual picture of how you are. That changes your day. If you know that about yourself and that that's been the gift of Christ upon you, that's an awesome thing, isn't it? A couple more implications just as the worship team returned to the platform. Thank you so much, Kevin. Our boast then, that slide I showed you before about what we boast in, our boast is in Jesus, not in ourselves, isn't it? How can we boast in ourselves? Because we haven't produced that. This has come from heaven and it sits on us and it's now ours from Jesus as a present. So whenever we do any boasting, we need to point to who? The Lord Jesus. We need to point to Jesus and to God and to the Holy Spirit, not to ourselves. That's really important. Of course, then, if you're wearing a shirt like this, you kind of need to live a life worthy of the shirt, don't you? You know, you can't be going down the gambling shop in your Jesus shirt. Well, you can't. And I think sometimes we try and do these things, don't we? And we're still wearing the shirt. And then we're like, oh man, this is really hard. Don't do that. Live a life worthy of the righteousness that Jesus has put upon you. And then lastly, one more point is, how about we help others find their shirt that Jesus has waiting for them? Because there are some shirts for everybody in the, in the whole world waiting from Jesus to be put upon people so that they can have their relationship with Jesus for themselves and have the righteousness of Christ because of a relationship and solely a relationship. Let's give Eli a round of applause and let's all stand. Let's all stand. Thank you, Eli. Well done. Great job. If you want that righteousness upon you right now and you don't know that that's the position that you have, Becky's going to put a slide up on the screen and we're going to pray a prayer together. And that prayer is a prayer to follow this amazing misfit rabbi carpenter who stunned 10,000 Jews enough to completely change all their traditions and to change their minds. And I want to say to you this morning, maybe you're in here for the first time after a long time. Maybe you're in here for the first time ever. Maybe you've been in here for a while, but you're still not sure about Jesus. I would highlight to you 10,000 Jews made a massive, massive decision back in those early years because they responded to something they actually saw and actually felt, which lasts to this day in churches all around the world. Maybe you want to respond in the same way. So we're just going to pray this prayer. Lots of other people in the room already wear the golden shirt to extend the analogy. Maybe you want to put the golden shirt on as well. And by, by that, I mean step into a relationship with the Lord Jesus. 
So pray with me just a moment. And the rest of the church will just indulge me on this. We'll pray together. Let's pray. The prayer goes like this. Lord Jesus, I'm so sorry for everything I've got wrong. Please forgive me for being separated from you and from other people. I believe that you died on the cross to take away my sins, that you rose again on the third day, that you are alive and with me now. And I receive you now into my life as Lord. Please lead me and help me to live for you from now on. Thank you for your gift of eternal life now and forever. And there's a couple of ways to respond to this. If you prayed that prayer and you've never prayed that prayer before or it's been a long, long time since you've been around Jesus, then why don't you point your phone at that QR code, just give us very basic details, your name, your first name, your surname, your email, your your mobile. We'll be in touch with you. The other way you can do that is if just during our worship time, we're not going to call you to the front, but during our worship time, um, come and meet my wife, Chloe. She's just going to be at the back there, just in the outer lobby. Uh, She's going to walk out now and maybe quietly, if you just slip from your seat and say, hey, do you know what? I want that shirt. I'm so tired of my life being covered in scummy words that describe me. I would love the righteousness of Jesus upon me. If that's you, then you need to go and see Chloe. She's got some gifts for you. She'll pray with you a bit more, grab your details. That would just be our absolute privilege. Why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you do that? That's just, a, just so, so much common sense to me. Just raise your hand in here. 